Goedemiddag allemaal, kan jullie maar allemaal hoor. Baie welkom by die Noordfest sessie paneel oor What's in a Name? The New Queer Frontiers. Ons gaan meeste van die sessie in Engels hou, omdat Mark is Engels, hy verstaan Afrikaans, maar as een soort van een gebaar van gastvryheid by die woordfeest, gaan ons die gaan ons meeste van die sessie in Engels hou. I understood every word you said, every single one. Ek het hier saam met my Kim Wintvogel. Hallo Rowan. Wat die boek They Called Me Queer saamgestel het een verschameling van nieuwe queer skryber wat gepubliseerd is door Queda en hier langs my maak gevisser is een nieuwe boek The Pink Line Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers The book is eminently due for publication by Farrar Strauss and Jura, New York en hier plaaslik sal het gepubliseerd word door Jonathan Bull uitgeleerd So Ter voorbereiding vir die paneel het ek teruggegaan na Romeo en Juliet en draaid twee sien een want die titel van ons paneel kom daar vandaan What's in a name? The full version of the quote reads as follows and it is Juliet who is speaking What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name which smells as sweet So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called Retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo doth thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. So the clink of Juliet besig is om te argumenteer dat die naam nie rechtig baie saak maak. She says that Romeo would retain his dear perfection even if he was not called Romeo. Baar, soos ons weet, die konflik in Romeo en Juliet gaan juist oor die twee se vanne. Juliet is a Capulet and Romeo is a Montague and the two families have been at each other's throats forever. So similarly, in both the books we will be discussing today, it becomes clear that issues around names and naming are critical when we try to understand the world's queer frontiers today, to use Mark's term. For instance, and more specifically, for queer people today, it is still the case that name calling by the voices of hegemonic heteronormative power often signify the beginning of a violation and a violence that can literally still, in this day and age, end in death. So, Kim, um, I want to begin by asking you if you could tell us a bit more about how your book came to be called They Called Me Queer and about what the significance of the title is for you. Wow. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, I'll try my best to speak a little bit of mingles so that I can encompass everyone. Um, in terms of the name, they called me queer. Well, the, first of all, the book came about um, because I was, or I'm friends with someone called Zina Muhammad. She's the compiler of a book called She Called Me Woman, uh, Nigeria's Queer Women Speak. And for some time before that, I had been very interested in creating a book like that in South Africa, of course, using a completely different process. I think their book took like three years to, to compile because they traveled to each individual <coughs> province and trying to speak to everybody personally, which is not the process that we, as the compilers for they, they Called Me Queer, took. Um, and yeah, and that after that, it kind of just propelled the whole uh, experience of starting to compile this book, which took about 16 months. In terms of the name, um, 
for me, the term queer as a younger person um, is something that I have reclaimed. And I think it was important for us to use that title and put queer in there because the younger generation, we've kind of just taken it, everything is hashtag queer, you know. Queers are here, queer as fuck, queer this and that. You know, we've really taken a word that used to create so much um, dividends, is that a word, or, or, or divisiveness, um, and, and made it our own. Um, but I, we also decided to not call it they call me queer because we also wanted to take into consideration what the term queer meant for different generations, um, mostly older generations. And a lot of people are still very, they, they still question why we called it, they called me queer, or use the term queer in our title. So the reason why we said called, as in past tense, is also to take into consideration that for a lot of people that also still holds some form of pain, and a lot of healing needs to happen from that. And then of course, the book where it comes from is called She Called Me Woman. So it all kind of just fit nicely together as a, as a triple thread. Yeah. So, baie van die skryfers in die boek um, skryf oor hoe hulle verskillende insulting en demeaning dinge genoem is. Daar is aan die swam kosiese story en taart op die kolk nie staban. Wat natuurlijk die neerhalende term aan Zulu is vir kweer what was the brief to the authors? Did you, did you tell the authors, we're going to put together a book called They Called Me Queer, and please write, as, write whatever, or how did, how did that come about? Yeah, ons het, um, Eerstens was de groot van ons vrienden wat, wat saam gesit het, ons het begin praat oor ons ervarings, en baie van ons ervarings thread together, um, van pijn, en dan finally, as jy gelukkig is, kom daar um, geneesing, en daar kom aanvaring vir jouself, en dan natuurlijk hoe allemaal anders jou dan sien. Um, maar ons het nie een groot brief vir mense gesteer nie, ons het vir de e-post gesteer, ons het gesê, dit is wat ons wil hee, dit is die boek wat ons gaan, gaan by mekaar sit, of saamstel, um, in die working title was they called me queer, ons het net, ons het to, uh, nie meer working title genoem nie, maar dit het to die titel geboord. Um, so die brief aan die skrywers, it was, we, we asked them, please write about any experience. It doesn't have to be about your queerness. It doesn't have to be that you're lesbian or gay or bi or trans or intersex or asexual and the rest of the alphabet soup as we call it. It was, you can write about anything. The fact that you are queer or that you are part of the community that is your story. You don't have to write about your coming out story. I know a lot of people are over the fact that we're constantly writing about our coming out stories. It's still very important. We still need to speak about it, but we are multifaceted people. We have lots of stories to tell on the spectrum of pain and joy. Um, so we asked people where they were interested. And if they had some writer's block or they didn't know really, they just came to a stop street or a cross in the road, we sent them some questions, um, just some probing questions, just to trigger um, emotions or thoughts or um, experiences. And that was the brief to the authors. There was no brief, but there also was um, assistance along the way. I see. Yeah. So, it is my interesting that you have two books that that you have two books that you have two books and, and I'm wondering about the difference between um, 
between compiling and editing. Okay. Um, what did your job as an editor involve? Did you did you have to make some difficult choices, or is this book more in the tradition of because we write what we like and we so so what was what was what was the editing? Was there the editing aspect? Okay. To, so to this role? I would say in, I'm glad that you mentioned in the tradition of I write what I like because I write what I like is. A book written by one person to in different institutions, right? Mm -hmm. um, in terms of I write what I like about your institution or to, to your institution. However, this is a, a book with, I think, about 30 contributors. Um, but yes, it did follow in the tradition of I write what I like. In terms of editing, um, as a, the job of a compiler is to do all the work in, in terms of getting the writers, communicating with people. Um, some of the essays in there were written by me. Um, but we decided not to because oral history in, in African this is an African tradition, right? And a lot of people aren't necessarily comfortable with writing. So some people we did interview and we wrote it uh, for them, but it's still their story, and so they wrote it. So we didn't make that distinction between those who wrote and those who were interviewed by us. Um, so the job of a compiler is a lot of logistical work. It's a lot of nagging. It's a lot of saying where is your know, submission deadline. Um, and then we do the first edits, and we do the proofreading, and then it goes to the official editor, and then we all have to work together. So it was a team of three people, myself, and then two Kellys, uh, Kelly Eve Kupman, who compiled it with me, and then uh, Kelly Smith, who was the official editor. I see. Yeah. And it was hard. I think in terms of editing, there were a few times where there was some contestation, you know, with some writers being like, you are taking away certain things that I really want to express in a way that is maybe not in English the correct way, but this is how I want to say it. Um, and so we, of course, followed that tradition of I write what I like, and then always let the author have the last say in their voices with little to no censorship. It's very important. Right, because I wanted to ask you about the difficult choices. Yes. and whether there were difficult choices to be made. So it sounds like there were. There were difficult choices, but um, you know how, I need to tell you the story, you know how you start with 60 people, they say, yes, we're all going to write for this book, mm. and we're all going to send in on time, and everything's going to be great. We had 58 confirmed <laughs> <laughs> contributors, and we ended with uh, 32 contributions and... Uh, I think it's 29 contributors because I think there are two writers who who submitted two pieces each. Mm. I think what makes the book unique is the fact that um, the, there is so many different formats. Mm. You have something, there is the letter format, there is the political statement format, there is the short story format. Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you navigate all these different formats and forms? <laughs> it was it, it's really hard. We said to people, if you, basically the brief was, you are queer or you identify as queer or you're part of the community. Um, and your brief is that you can write about anything and everything in any format that you want between, the, between 50 words and 5,000 words. That was the basic brief. Um, yeah, so it was hard because once they started coming in, we were like, wow, these stories thread together so nicely, and then you have to make decisions in terms of how you're going to place it in order. Are we going to place all the pieces on polyamory together? Are we going to place all the pieces of uh, gay men together? Or are we going to kind of just let it 
go as, you know, um, how are we going to do this? So I think that to me was the hardest part of this in the end, when we got to the end, the last and final push was, how do we space out these pieces that are so vast and so mm -hmm. different, um, but we can still celebrate it because the spectrum is so fucking wide <laughs> and the it's still growing. Is, yeah, I, think, I think the book reflects queer, you know, in its yeah. form as well as its substance. It, there, is a, there is a queerness to the book itself yes. as, a, as an artifact. Yeah. I think that it's not all, it's just not all unique in, in, in its own um, defeat. Yeah. But I hope you can get a more of a political question. Lynn Shepard's contribution is titled Dear First. And she schrijft the brief on her first letter. Yeah. And she says, You called me queer with such content, but you are queer too. So, do you think that queer authors and queer people more generally have successfully appropriated queer? You, you talked about this earlier on. You said uh, we've appropriated queer. Um, or is it the case that uh, queer is still a point of contestation, a, 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 a kind of place and, and, and signifier of tension between this old derogatory sort of use of the term and the new appropriation of the term? Hmm. Firstly, I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, at the time, because uh, Ling Shepard wrote a piece, as, uh, as you mentioned, on their first love, right, or their first queer love, the person that they were in a relationship with, if you read the, the piece, you can gather that they're still in the closet, but they're not out. They're not um, uh, living their lives. I'm not really sure how to always say that. Um, but they're not uh, open about their sexuality. They're on the down line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the deal. <laughs> yes, they are. So I think it depends on who you ask in terms of how we've appropriated the term. A lot of people deal with internalized homophobia or internalized queerphobia or internalized biphobia or transphobia or what, what have you. And so even those people who then happen to be in relationships, in queer relationships, you can still carry that internalized um, biphobia or queerphobia. And maybe that is how you can then uh, also communicate things tell someone else in a derogatory way that you are queer, like this person has said to, to Ling, um, even though they are still queer. Um, so I think that is a much larger discussion. It's very, it's, very, it's very hard. It's very similar to the term colored. A lot of people have, appropriate, uh, have reclaimed rather the term colored as something to mean something about their identity, whereas others are like, this does not exist. The apartheid government created this group of people, and we do not align with the term colored. Um, so I think, again, it depends on who you ask, and, but every identity is valid. So it's, yeah. You're not asking me questions yet, but I'd love to. No, yeah. Absolutely. It was a huge uh, choice for me with a lot of consultation and a lot of disagreement mm. as to whether I should call this new book Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers mm. because of the awkwardness of the word queer and the kind of it's not set. The, word, the meaning of queer is not set the way Absolutely. the meaning of gay is set or even the meaning of LGBT is set. Mm. The LGBT or LGBTQ or LGBTQ, etc. Has, has no um, valence. It's purely descriptive. Mm, mm, Whereas mm. queer has a valence. And in fact, I, I began, my very first words in the book are, mm. I like the word queer 
because of its double values, mm. as well as having been reappropriated by people across the world, world to describe themselves, queer means different or skewed. Because mm. I think, let's not forget what queer means. Sure. Yeah, and to see things from a queer perspective is to look at the world as scars, mm. to see it afresh. But then I write, and I think this is true for me, I know it's true for you too, mm. Kim, but frankly, it's also convenient. It's a catch-all that can hold, well, most of the L's, the B's, the G's, and the T's, and everyone else on the expanding alphabet. You don't need to be thinking, oh my God, do I have the A in? Do I have the, how many Q's do I have? Two or three or four? You've just got queer. And do I put a plus? Do I put a minus? An ampersand? But then I went on to write, but sometimes for this reason, queer has sometimes lost its queer meaning, particularly in the United States. If everyone is queer, no one is. And, and that is an interesting dilemma. Mm. As queer people, or gay people, or whatever you want to call us, mm. become the new normal and become mainstream. Yeah. So, um, you know, is Pete Buttigieg queer? Mm. Yeah. Or is he gay? And could he call himself queer when he's sort of married to Chaston and, 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 and fighting for... And how does one contest mm. Wayne? that term is appropriate in that way. Exactly. Yeah, and also how do you police that? Because you also can't police people's identities. And so if someone calls themselves queer... No, you're an you, investment banker. You may not be queer. Yeah, you know, like... <laughs> you, you can't police people's identities in the yeah. same way. But I agree with you. Queer is an all-encompassing term, and that's, that's why I like it. Like, in the, in, the, in the years that I've been... And I mean, it's going to continue... Um, questioning my gender identity, my expression of my gender identity, as well as my sexual orientation, I think it was hard because I never knew like where I fall and what do I call myself. And that's why language is so important. And uh, sometimes labels are also important. Words, meanings, in our own languages, in Afrikaans, in Kosa, in whatever languages you may have. So I think, yeah, queer works for me. Because when I'm also uncertain and sometimes feeling a type of way and not really sure how to um, express myself, I can find comfort in the term queer because it encompasses even my... Con I hate the word confusion when I talk about our communities. But, how about fluidity? Yes. <laughs> it encompasses all of my feelings and my emotions and my experiences without having to think too hard. So that's, that, yeah. that, that's also quite interesting because, you know, the, the, the tendency particularly in, um, in the West, mm. it's one of the things I look at in the book, is to insist on a separating art of gender identity and sexual orientation. So there's these wonderful expressions like, mm. uh, my gender identity is between my ears, my sex is between my legs. Oh, they call it the gingerbread man. There's the gingerbread <laughs> person yeah. that yeah. does all of this. And it's really important because what transgender people have to deal with is really not what but certainly what gay men have to deal with. Yeah. And, and you can be transgender and straight. Um, yes. the sexual orientation and gender identity are, are apples and oranges mm. in one respect. And, and, and the rights have to be... So right now, for example, Kim is, is fighting for, for gender identity rights here in South Africa, and I'm sure yeah. you can tell us about that. But yeah. that has nothing to do with, really, my struggle as a gay man. It's, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a different thing. And yet, in the history of humankind, Sexual orientation and gender identity have so often been twined. Yes, and, 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 and to separate them out is there's something quite artificial about it. Mm. And for me too, and it's something my, my book is not a personal book, mm. it's a, we'll talk about it. Yeah. 
but it's but I do reflect on, on my own experience. And, mm. and for me, the power of queer is to be able to to think about not just my sexual orientation, but my gender identity in a in a non-binary way. Yes. So what we are what we are talking about now that makes me think of what Luandu Scott writes in in his piece. He quotes Jose Munoz and says who says we have never been queer, yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past mm. and used to imagine a future. A future. A future is queerness's domain. So what do you think of that? I mean, I think that uh, it's, it's in a way too easy to call queer uh, simply as a term uh, that has a double valence. It has valences. It has many valences. It doesn't just have two, which is what double, what double implies. Mm. So you're accusing me of being But I, I, I wondered um, how you feel about this idea that the more we, the more we appropriate queer, the more we, um, we bring it into being, rather than, um, rather than um, uh, sort of in, simply, simply appropriate it. Uh, by appropriating, we bring it, we, we bring it into being. We, we 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 are making it. Yeah. I don't know. I think it just we are we are claiming it as our own, and we are making it to mean what we mean instead of what people um, uh, 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 impose on us. Yeah. A lot of the, the 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 writing in the book speaks on bullying and how kids were, or some of the authors were bullied as kids due to certain behaviors that they might have expressed um, without even knowing about you know, uh, the spectrum of uh, sexual orientations and gender identities that do exist. Um, so, so I think it's about taking that narrative, claiming it and using our own words for it um, instead of allowing it to still have that hold. Um, that, yes. it, that it used to have yes. and still has for, for, for some people. Maar dit is ook my as die boek is as op die boekse titel. Dat is een provocatie in die boekse titel. They called me queer, so dit is een beginpunt. Ons yeah. moet deal met die feit dat, ons, dat iemand anders ons geïdentificeerd yeah. en yeah. genoem het queer. Mm. En um, dit is vir my wat die, wat, wat, die, wat die kwestie van trauma belangrijk word. En hoe mens dier trauma werk met in their personal narrative. I think I'm going to come to my first question. When I begin to ask who I am and what I am going to do and what I am going to do and what I am going to do, I began to narratives. I went looking for these narratives. I was like, who, who can I identify with? You know, who, who has written on this? Who has YouTube videos on this? Who, you know, where can I see myself? And a lot of the, and if Katie Eve, if she was here, she would agree with me because she has a similar story. A lot of the narratives that we found, or that I found, was not from here. Um, it was very academic. Uh, it was very white. Um, it wasn't. It did. It wasn't very intersectional. It didn't take a lot of the issues that queer people of color or Black queer people experience. Um, on the vast, obviously, spectrum of experiences that we all have, because it's not just one. Um, and I think that's why I was so adamant that this needs to be, the book needs to exist out of majority personal narrative stories, because I'm interested in what you have to say. 
not what you necessarily can quote or reference, which is very important. I'm not um, uh, saying uh, the academia space is not important. I just feel that there's a lack. Yeah, so I think this was a false part for me by the language that stories from the person must be written. Yeah, and that's why I come from the Ankom. I get a blog, and I get to explain that for all the internet, I get to write, and I get to write for. Not just my sex life, but there's a bias where a lot of people focus on queer people's stories just about our sex lives, which is important. I mean, we all like sex. But um, it was important that there's a, a spectrum of voices. And so, yeah, personal narratives to me is very, 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 very important. As a way also of working through the trauma. Of working of, through your trauma. Yeah. And a lot of the authors uh, wrote to us afterwards and said, this is something that I, I never thought of. I didn't think of my personal narrative, and now I've I've worked through some of my issues or some of my feelings and experiences, and if that is all the book did, then I'm happy. Yeah. I, I very much have the sense in many of the stories that people are working through their issues, as you call them. Yeah. And it's bereit and it's struggle. Yes. But 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 he basically doesn't have to be in um to pose that they they pose um themselves as a question for themselves. Yes. Anybody means to do that, Nina. It is weird. It is, it is, it is, it is, um, it's upsetting. Sometimes. Exactly. And, 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 when you when you as the reader then go through it uh, or read it, you you experience that stream of consciousness, um, and I think that is also a very important part. I learned so much reading and proofreading and rereading this book so much. It's, <coughs> yeah, it's medicinal in a way. Okay, Kim, I'll come back to you because there are more questions. <laughs> but um, that I, let me go to Mark and quickly, um, Mark. So this. This uh, book, we have it here <laughs> in in in, in uh, material form, um, and it, it it is an enormous accomplishment. Um, it, uh, it, I, I I cannot begin to think how you put this book together. It it really is is quite um, something. Um, but the book is called the Pink Line, and so and then journeys across the world's queer frontiers, but. Um, I think it's important for the audience who may, who would not have had uh, the opportunity to have a look at the book. Well, they wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. because the book is not out yet. I just so, got this. So this is the this is the Bound Galleys, which is what gets sent to critics. Yeah. And I just got it a, a few days ago. So. Is that the official cover? Yeah, the cover will look like that. It's amazing. Um, it's lovely. Oh, there's a pink line. You're looking at it. So, what is this pink line, Mark, as a concept? So um, I I was I I was really this this the, the journey of this began in 2012. I've been working on it for seven or eight years, and it began with me really wanting to understand um, how how it had come to be that a new conversation with new rights uh, or the new denial of rights. It happened so quickly in, in just one generation. I mean, I imagine I'm older than you, but you could probably say the same thing mm. about what you thought your life was going to be 
uh, when you first started thinking about these things and, and, and what is possible now. Mm. Certainly for me, age 55, it, it's, it's kind of shocking and amazing. So I wanted to understand how this conversation had come about in such a, such a short space of time. And, and the way I did this was by looking at places where the conversation was fraught and difficult. Um, so whether that is in a South African township where there is this thing called corrective rape, or whether it's in a country like Uganda where um, there, were, there, there, there were new efforts to criminalize homosexuality and a lot of very violent public homophobia, or whether it's in a place like the United States where there are a whole lot of freedoms and where where the frontier is now something different about who has the right to call themselves a gender other than what they were assigned at birth and at what age can you do that? Yes. So all of these are kind of new human rights frontiers. And as I was doing this work, I came to see these, human rights front, these new human rights frontiers as something of a pink line that was describing and defining people in new ways, in ways that had never been done before. And, 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 and on, on a purely geographic level, the pink line is between um, countries on the one side that are uh, legalizing same-sex marriage or making it possible for you to have the right to self-determination over what your gender is. And on the other side, countries that are criminalizing homosexuality more or using old laws about vagrancy to, to arrest and throw into jail. Transgender. And buggery. <laughs> buggery. But what's interesting about this is that it's, and this is important, is, is that, it's, that these two things are not happening in isolation. The one is a backlash to the other. Yes. So, so, so this whole issue of gay rights or LGBT rights or whatever you want to call it has become a pink line, a battleground on a frontier called the pink line where if you want to make your case for traditional values, or you want to make your case against Western capitalism, secular, decadent Western capitalism, or you want to make your case for human rights and for individual rights and against the oppressive Muslim world, you can use LGBT rights. So queer people kind of get instrumentalized on this front line um, in a way that they never have before. It's become a major geopolitical issue, and that's what my book's about. So the pink line can work in many ways, from a from a geographical way to a um, to I, I tell the story, for example, about a church that I visit in in Nigeria, where where the queens, as they call themselves, who go to the church, have to arrive at the church, which is in an apartment block, uh, looking as proper as possible, and really not walking girly which is an expression used across Africa that I think is very descriptive. And then they knock on the gate and somebody looks through a little hole and, and if they recognize they come in and once they're inside, they can put on all their finery and then they can meet their Lord as the way they are. And that's another, that gate is another pink line that's too. And we all have pink lines inside us, sure. which might be our internalized homophobia too. So, I mean, it's pretty, it's I, like queer, it can yeah, be anything. But, I want to jump actually and ask you about you know, there's a story in, in um, it's Chase Rice's story about the him being, he's in the bathroom, his yeah. mother, well, the, the character, the main character is in the bathroom, 
his mother and him have played what I what I said to someone, a little mevrouw mevrouw gespeel. <laughs> so they, they, he's made up, he has his makeup on and yes. um, his mother has put this makeup on him. And now the drunk father has come home and the father has seen the straw with the makeup on and he is absolutely livid at the mother and at the child and the child locks himself in the bathroom. And it's for me, and, the, and then there's incredible domestic violence that happens on the other side yeah. of the door. And, um, and, he, and he undergoes a kind of psychosis in that bathroom. Um, and it, it, uh, it, is, it, is, it is really one of the stories that blew me away in this book. Um, and there is a pink line in the bathroom. There, there at, that, at that point, that door is a pink line. Um, but in, in many prominent ways, the bathroom has become the place where the pink line Absolutely. is being the pink line, I mean, I write in my book that in the United States and in the United Kingdom now, the pink line runs right through children's bathrooms because the issue is whether transgender children yes. can use the bathroom um, of their felt gender rather than the gender that was assigned to them at birth. And this has become a major battle. I write about it in the book. It's become, it's become the, the latest battle in, in the American culture wars, which are sort of battles over... Yeah over social um, values. That conversation is happening in South Africa yeah. as well, yes. currently uh, surrounding bathrooms and how we, how we navigate yeah. it, because it's, it's a place of violence for a lot of people, uh, non-binary people included. Um, at our, in the law faculty at UCT where I work, it took four years for us, an incredible sort of effort to finally have a gender neutral bathroom mm. in one, in one, yeah. on one of the floors. Um, the resistance was enormous. And, and this from one would expect an institution where this should, should, should be leading this kind of intervention. The, the, the bureaucratic resistance yeah. remained enormous. But I mean, it's, it, why, why shouldn't, uh, I don't know, I, I, because, because Kim works as a, 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 for, for an advocacy organization that deals with gender yeah. and transgender issues a lot. So I'd love to hear what you think about this as well. I mean, one shouldn't belittle the um, resistance to the anxiety about gender in bathrooms because there's something really primal about it. Yeah, and I think absolutely. one needs to understand why it causes such panic and anxiety. I think, I think firstly, um, I don't think that people who are gender variant are calling for only gender neutral bathrooms. I think there's validity in wanting uh, women's bathrooms and men's bathrooms. I think the issue is that it shouldn't be for cisgendered people. If you, if your gender is that of a woman, then and your felt gender is that of a woman, regardless of what uh, sex you were assigned at birth due to your genitalia, um, that should be your space that you are able to use. Mm -hmm. A lot of the fears, in terms of, um, especially from cisgendered people, is that and cisgendered women specifically, is that they fear this trans violence like that uh, a trans woman is going to come into our bathroom with a man or according yeah so, okay yeah a man someone they with a would, dick. yeah, yeah. Dick. they would the think anxiety. that someone who has yes yeah. uh, uh, a dick as you say they, they just want to come and be violent and um it opens, you know, it opens a space for violence yeah but where does that fear come from when it's someone it's it kind of in it, it kind of states that you believe that 
trans people have violent tendencies that they're going to come in like we're just trying to use the bathroom like there's I'm just trying to pee there's an underlying prejudice there yes there is a like and when yeah so I think that these these are valid questions and I don't think that people should just throw it under the rug and say that no this is what we're calling for I think we should really give space to that to discuss it but also to calm people's fears because violent people will be violent regardless of who has access to this bathroom um, it's not a trans person is not going to come into the bathroom and just be violent purely because they have a okay. dick. It's so, not, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, that is the, that is how we, um, well, and, how I see it. And it's not yeah. only about the use of bathrooms, we should say, because yeah. in fact, um, I know that this is this is a debate here too. But in the United Kingdom at the moment, there's a huge debate, a very very um, uh, corrosive debate yeah. around whether um, the law should be changed to allow for what is called self-determination, mm. which means that I, if I feel I'm a woman, I can go into home affairs and say, I am a woman, and I have the right to be named a woman. I don't need to go through any external certification. That's the right of self-determination. There's some countries in the world where that's not legal. Argentina is one, Denmark Malta. is one, Malta is one. Very few, but there's some. Now, the British government under Theresa May said they were going to do this. As well, and there was huge resistance, and the resistance interestingly came from feminist organisations because because feminists are divided on this issue, who spoke about the danger to cisgender women, which is women who are who who live the gender that they were assigned at birth, by trans men in not just in uh, bathrooms but in prisons. Mm. Then the whole thing about sport came in. If I can just name myself a woman, I can, I can run in women's events and, 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 and win. Mm. So it, it's becoming a huge and very corrosive debate in Britain that's, that hasn't yet been resolved. Yeah. And I understand from Kim it's, it's a debate here too. Yeah, I mean, in South Africa um, last year, I don't know if anyone has heard about the Jade September case. I yeah, heard yeah. so Jade September is a woman who um, was placed in a male prison because that's the sex that she was assigned at birth. However, um, she wanted to express her gender in whatever way that she wanted to. So she wanted to have her wigs and her makeup, you know, certain things that she is able to do according to our constitution. And um, the wardens at the prison were very against this and they would take her stuff from her and they would not allow her to express her gender in the way that she wanted to. And she took them to court and she won. Um, so the, 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 the judge, her name is Chantal Fortin, in her statement or in her judgment, she, she said people are, are, are allowed and should be allowed to express their gender and um, people should be allowed to be in either a female prison or a male prison or where they want to be depending on their, um, on their gender identity. So that was in the judgment and it was a big win. There were some issues in the judgment, but it was a big win for us. Um, and for the transgender community at large. And that, that happened last year, I think it was in August. So it's a very recent uh, judgment, you can go and check it out online, it's, it's very interesting. Sorry, can you, yeah. can you say anything about where, where uh, the South African government is at the moment on the issue of self-determination? Okay, so, okay, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say. <laughs> but there is a... <laughs> there is a call for self-determination to legal gender recognition, um, as we've seen in Malta. Malta is a really good country to look at. Um, they, as Mark has stated, 
excuse me, um, it is not based on what you were assigned at birth. So in the ideal world, when you are born on your birth certificate, you would not have an M or an F. You wouldn't have a gender marker until you are old enough or at a certain age where you, where, where, where you can yeah, express yourself and say, okay, I want to remain an X and I want to remain unspecified. Or I believe that I want an M as for male on my birth certificate or, or in the national registry or whatever it may be, or I want an F. So it is based on self-determination. You choose. Um, on a policy level, that is a great thing. However, as we've seen, policies in South Africa are very inclusive, but then it comes to things like your parents. What is your community like? Where do you live? Who's going to tell you about these things? So I think, again, what happens on top in terms of policy and laws needs to translate to what's happening on the ground. And as we know, this is not happening in South Africa. Yes, it's an implementation issue. It's an implementation issue, and it's also, it, it, it's hard. Because these discussions are very, it, it's very hard. You, you, we, in society, we tend to think that it's a top-down structure, and we think that it, once we change policies and we change laws, it's going to translate on the ground. In the same breath, policy and law is important because if something does happen to you, you want to be able to say, this is in the Constitution, I can take you to court, as we've seen in the, in the Jade September uh, case. I am able to say, this is wrong on your side, um, on state side, and I want to take you to court, and I can win. Um, so I think uh, laws and policies are very, very important, but they have to work hand in hand with implementation. Yeah. And implementation comes from everywhere, regardless of whether you're an activist or a politician. It is parents, it is family, it is friends, it is your kids, it is how we communicate with each other, it is um, the language that we use, it's how we speak to little kids. If a little kid is there and they're just playing, a little kid that's assigned male at birth, playing with another kid that's assigned female at birth, and now you're going, oh, you're going to get married one day. It's in language like that. Why do we expect them to get married purely because they're seen as male and female? It's the language that we use when we speak to people as well. So it's very together. On the implementation of this belief, it needs to be implemented in a context of homophobia, and a community of heteronormative mag. Yeah. So, this is amper as of this from the beginning of it's on the back foot. Mm. Because it has to be implemented in a society that has not yet undergone uh, or that not yet the transformation has been done. Precisely. It's our work. I don't know what to say. It's enough with our work. It's not scarcity work. We have to work in our churches. And we have to be in discussion with our churches and the leaders in our churches. But, but the yeah. interesting thing, what I find really interesting, and it, and it really comes to the maybe to the nub of what the topic of today is, uh, and and the title of your book, they called me queer, which is just like there's this. I, I don't want to romanticize pre-colonial African society as this kind of free space where people could be as queer as they want to. Let's not do that, right? Yeah. But but it is true that that, that laws criminalizing um, homosexual activity and and laws putting in very rigid definitions of what is male and what is female came from colonization. the co from colonization and from that lovely double act between colonizer and missionary. Mm. 
mm, yeah. mm. That, that was so powerful in yep. this part of the world. And, um, and, and we, we tend to think top down uh, that like our great constitution in South Africa is going to set us free mm. because there's a law up at the top and it's going to trickle down. And as you say, we've, we've seen the limitations of that. Yes. And, and so looking at it, the, the, another way, I want to just tell you a story that I report in my book from, um, the, from Botswana next door to us where um, Botswana's made incredible strides in, in allowing people uh, to have the rights as transgender people, but also in decriminalizing homosexuality. And there was, there was um, a court judgment last year uh, that, where the Botswana High Court decriminalized homosexuality. And the plaintiff was a man named Letsweletsi Mwashidiman. I'll just read this paragraph here. He filed the case as a 21-year-old university student with the help of a law professor. Interviewed at the time of the judgment, Mwashidiman's words were that in the small village, rural village where he was reared, people knew I was different but I was surrounded by people who loved me. Mm. I was never taught to hate myself. That job was done by something else. And this is what he says, it was the laws. And so this, this working from the bottom up and, and seeing how, what kind of social cohesion families have and the ways in, in, in African communities that, um, that, that difference is valued mm. as for example being inhabited by an ancestor of the other mm -hmm. gender and therefore being closer to the ancestors if you're butch, if you're a butch woman mm -hmm. or a fair man. They're incredible models for us to work on as we think work. That was a beautiful what you read because that goes against the grain of what people love to say that homosexuality is un-African or if you update it to now, queerness is un-African. You know, it goes exactly against that because you're speaking from, or that person was speaking from how, from the ground they felt held, but it was something else that was the problem. So I want, I want to give some um, time for the audience to um, jump in. But before we do that, Mark, you're not going to get away from <laughs> <laughs> the question. Um, the burning question I have is uh, the question about the process of, of making a book like, like this. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you go about, do you, did you do the research did you, did you do the research, complete the research and start writing the book, or was it a much more organic process? So it was really interesting for me to listen to you, um, Kim, because I'm actually editing a book at the moment where I'm doing very, not on, on something very different, on mm -hmm. legal activism and movement building, where I'm working in the way you worked with your book, which is as a, compiler. you call it a compiler, I like that word, but really as a ghostwriter, right? Mm. Interviewing people who don't write or whose second language is not. Yes. Because English is a second or third language, and exactly. helping shape their narratives in a way that are that is digestible to readers. Mm. So that's what I'm doing now. That that's not what this book is. I mean, this book is um, uh, it, it, it's it's a series of very deep profiles of people all over the world in ten different places. Yeah. One of whom is in Cape Town, um, whom I spent a lot of time with, and whose stories I filter through my subject. As the author, as a person on a journey, mm -hmm. that I invite you, the reader, to come along with me, and in a way that I hope kind of respects them as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But it, but it, I am filtering their story um, and and putting the stories together and seeing how they all fit and all of that. And um, you can you can never know somebody's story as well as they know their own story, of course. 
Um, but I personally believe the act of trying to understand other people's stories and telling them is is the fundamental, that act of empathy is what is at the core of humanist society. So I'm very committed to it and, and I'll never stop doing it. Yeah. In this instance, it, it meant um, with the help of a, of, a, of a very generous fellowship from the Open Society Foundations, traveling to a lot of places and, and meeting activists who work in the space. And from the activists, finding out what the stories were, what the pink lines were in their countries. And then asking them to introduce me to people who, who they thought were on the pink line. So for ex I'll give you an example. Russia is one of my countries where there's really hectic stuff around homophobia. Um, because of an anti-gay propaganda law. And according to the anti-gay propaganda law, um, you are not allowed to promote homosexuality to minors. Which, by the way, is not a Russian idea. It was, it was a Maggie Thatcher yeah, law I was just Britain. That, yeah. The Russians borrowed from Britain and from America, where Anita Bryant uh, uh, promoted it. So it's not a thing from Russia, it's like from the West. But anyway, I th what this meant was is that Parents, queer parents in Russia are particularly vulnerable because just by being themselves and having children, they could be breaking the law. Mm. And in fact, there was a time when um, a Russian legislator suggested that the government have the power to take children away from queer parents. So I thought, okay, this is the pink line in Russia. This is how I'm going to tell the Russian story. I'm going to find, a, I'm going to find queer parents who are struggling. And I was looking specifically for gay parents, or perhaps lesbian parents, because the law is an anti-gay propaganda law. But whom I found instead was an extraordinary woman called Pasha, who's a transgender woman, who has lost access to her child because of these laws. So I tell her story. Yeah. Once I'd identified her, I, I went and met her. I had to get her to agree to talk to me, which is a long process, um, as it should be. Um, and I managed to go back to Russia three times, which is amazing. Other, other places like Mexico, another place I write about, I only managed to get there once because of resources. But it wasn't enough just to go there three times. And, and, and one of the reasons why I did this book over a, a long period of time is I wanted to, to have relationships with people over a period of time, particularly younger people who are coming, to their, to themselves, coming into their identities to see how their identities grow and change. Like if you come out as, as trans when you're 18, mm. and, then, and even if you go through hormone treatment, mm. and even if you have surgery, how are you feeling when you're 25? It was really interesting for me to, to see that. But I couldn't be with all these 10 people in 10 different parts of the world, so I use social media a huge amount, which in and of itself is fascinating. I'm not a social media person, I hate it. I don't, I don't live my life online. But, it's, but, but so many of the people I write about do. And, 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 and since, since that is the presentational mode in, in, in our culture at the moment, it was, it, was it was very interesting for me to be a voyeur and see how the people I was writing about yeah, are presenting themselves. One has that impression from the book that, you, uh, that there is a certain enjoyment in this voyeurism of... of, of well, yeah, but, uh, voyeurism... I mean, I, I know, to say this enjoyment of wireism makes me sound like a bit of a creep. No, no, yeah. <laughs> Different not meaning. At all, they, not at all, but I think, I, I, I think they, they, what comes out in the book is that there is a certain, there is a certain satisfaction that comes from 
looking on and, and observing what is happening here because it enables one to tell the story. Absolutely. And also, I mean, in two ways. Firstly, I just, when I, when I get to do a project like this, I just think, oh my God, I'm the luckiest person on earth that I get, that I have an excuse to go into these people's lives and these places and understand so much about where they come from. That's the one thing. But the second thing is, is always being alive to how it's transforming me and how I'm learning yeah, you see. and how my queerness is um, evolving or my humanity is evolving as I, mm. as I engage with these people. So, yeah. Thank you very much. So, I was going to lekker gepraat as wat daar nog paar net oor vir die gehoor. I'm a lawyer and I've worked a lot in constitutional law at this interface exactly. Um, and I, I work with the school uh, on issues like this. And fear, I think it's so important to understand that it's not of trans fear is absolutely not that the genuine trans people will lead to the path it's that it opens up space for straight men mm. to abuse girls. That's the thing. You know, we spend so much time educating our girls about the date rape drugs, about uh, the dangerous spaces at house parties or in clubs, etc., etc., mm. because. You know, there are there are some teenage boys who will do anything who are horrible predators. And just in my limited experience, there are so many girls who have fallen victim in terrible ways. So the fear is that once you allow someone who's not a girl into the girls' trade, you're creating an unsafe space for those girls because of those straight predatorial boys out um, so the solution, I would imagine, is a third bar. But I just wanted to say that because I think it's terribly important, it's such a such a big issue that it's not, in my experience, it's not based in some sort of prejudice about transphobia, transphobia yeah. at all. It's it's the general trouble one has with very, very badly socialized boys in our society. Which brings us right back to homophobia, Israel the power of the way the Germany remains, the fact yeah. that Germany, mm -hmm. um, you know, is, is, is in, in trench. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the given we work. And some of boys still feel the time exactly. to touch girls when they want And that's, you know, as mothers and parents of these girls, that's our but I think the problem is not necessarily what you are speaking about. I think a, a lot of this debate is rooted in transphobia, and I'm not speaking about your perspective. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people are, we, you, when you speak about trans women, they will use language like trans women are not women, and they are not allowed in, in our bathrooms or my bathroom or whatever language people use due to the fact that they have not surgically transitioned or what have you. So I think the basis of a lot of the arguments come from transphobia, firstly. Um, in terms of the violence from straight cis men, that is happening. Regardless of whether trans people have access to the bathrooms that 
they of their foul gender. I'm, I'm using your term of foul gender. I kind of like it. <laughs> um, but I mean, the violence is happening, and that is an overarching issue within South African society. And I think that is something that we need to look at. It's, it's. I don't know. It's not the bathroom itself. It's the violence, and I'm not. It's 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 hard. It's hard because we do need to have these discussions. Um, I don't know, Mark, if you want to jump in here, but it's, no, it's, I, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, because firstly, the violence is happening, and secondly, most of the people who are against uh, people using bathrooms of their choice, it's mostly rooted in transphobia, um, and that is where the, where the hard work comes in. Two, two yeah. quick answers, because I'm sure yeah. people ask questions. I see it some, a little bit differently, Carol, which is, is that um, that fear is there, and we can talk about whether that fear is legitimate or not. But what I've seen in the United States and the United Kingdom is the way conservative, socially conservative, religious, right-wing organizations exploit that fear uh, to, to win the battle, the anti-transgender battle. And that's, that's, what's hap- that's what's happened in the United States. And, and I would say similarly in the United Kingdom where there's not the same kind of right-wing movement, but where there's a very strong radical feminist movement that has a strong ideological anti-transgender position. Women born women. If you ever had a penis, there's no way you can be a woman. And how that ideological movement is exploiting the fear. So that's what I've seen that I find troubling. Secondly, the third bathroom issue, I'll I'll just relate very quickly the experience of, of of a little boy I write about here, where the third bathroom didn't work. And we're talking about an eight year old, right? And if he's going into a third bathroom, then he's different and weird. And how is he going to undergo identity formation as a boy if he has to go to like a weird third bathroom, like through the staff room? So now, now what? Then it becomes a minority rights, majority rights issue. Because the majority of the parents of the school say, well, you know, we're really sorry for that boy, but like, we're the majority. Are we going to change our culture just because we, we want one boy to, to, to grow up healthy? not become a drug addict or kill himself, which is mm-hmm. what the research shows happens to trans kids. Mm-hmm. You know, if they, if they don't have the opportunity to, to live their full gender. So that, those are the complexities. Yeah. <laughs> not all narratives are about sex. Well, like most, you know, most of the narratives are not about sex. They're about a big spectrum of identities and experiences yeah. being and I, I, you know, I just, I just wonder whether you know, kind of they called us queer, or they used to call us homosexual, homosexual I think, where, where a lot of the stigmatization that queer people have experienced kind of through history, or a lot of time, is about, it's all about sex. It's all about your perverted sex. Yes. And in a way, I wonder whether kind of queer people of my generation and older have often internalized that. You know, mm. that gay pride kept up a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I found that you know, older people we interviewed tended to be like, ah, it's all this, you know, party and, you know, like, flirting and stuff like that. Yeah. And the younger people were actually much more interested in identity issues yes. and struggles yeah. and so on, you know. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just a, just, uh, and I'm, I'm very little time. Okay, last, last anecdote, yesterday, uh, after the beautiful uh, university choir concert that I'm happy to hear to spoke to one of the young choir members who said, how experience of being in the choir where there are queer and straight people together and total acceptance you know, kind of really helped him his coming out yeah. and how he sees the same happening with 
you know, first years good in the fire now. And that just kind of, yeah, that whole theme of, you know, can we get beyond settings without negating the settings? Yeah. Part of people really. mm. But addressing a much broader set of ideas. I think that our community has definitely internalized um, the whole sex narrative because straight people are like always interested what happens in our bedrooms or wherever <laughs> we have sex. They're always like, but oh my God, what do you do if there's no dick? Or like, what do you do if there's no this? And that? You know, it's like, what do you do? So I think definitely. <laughs> it's like, firstly, I never ask you what you do. <laughs> Um, so yeah, definitely. I think uh, we can all agree that we've, we've internalized that and kind of sometimes we put that on display because it's, 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 it's how people can kind of, uh, how we make ourselves palatable, you know, because, but now I think a lot of, as you say, a lot of younger people and older people, I mean, I'm not being ageist, I think it's all of us, we've, we're, we're moving past that now. Yeah. Um, uh, and when I speak about black queer people, especially prior to 1994, there was no identity for you. And you had to keep your identity here. And you weren't allowed to publish books, be a black writer in a book, or do X, Y, and Z. You know? So I think we have now, finally, there's this thing that we can have these identity politics and we can live them freely. And uh, I think there's, there's a big discussion about identity politics, especially from like, politicians. Like, ah, identity politics is a fad. It's not important. But a lot of the time, it comes from white people. Um, and it comes from people who are generally, not always, but generally allowed to express themselves. Who have already had the identities, who could take the language, who could use it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't know, it wasn't really a question, I'm just adding. <laughs> We're having conversation. Um, I do think that the narrative of our sex lives is important, regardless of whether you're straight or gay or queer or whatever. Um, but it's not the only thing. We're, we're a lot. We also go to the bathroom and we also talk to each other about random things, <laughs> want to get married, don't want to get married, whatever. Have kids. I can, I can <laughs> see that Mark is burning to read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Please read. read. I love opens, it. That opens his... Um, that opens yeah. his well, it's to, it's to this point, and it's the most amazing point by James Baldwin from oh, an yeah. essay of his called The Devil Finds Work, 1976. An identity is questioned only when it's menaced, as when the mighty begin to fall or when the wretched begin to rise or when the, when the stranger enters the gate, never thereafter to be a stranger. Identity would seem to be the garment with which one covers the nakedness of the self, in which case it is best that the garment be loose, a little like the robes of the desert, through which one's nakedness can always be felt and sometimes discerned. This trust in one's nakedness is all that gives one the power to change one's robes. And I really love that notion of shifting identity. Mm. Yeah, I think on that note, <laughs> we can conclude this very lively discussion um, and thank um, Kim and Mark for being with us here and for um, your wonderful contributions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Also to you.